Open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host of Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have a tremendous interview with Brock Pierce. He's co-founder of GoCoin, managing partner at Cryptocurrency Partners, and also on the board of directors of the Bitcoin Foundation. Welcome. Thanks, Trace. Good to see you. Brock, you're invested in over 30 different companies. Can you perhaps tell us a little bit about like what got you interested in the space and some of these companies you're invested in and why you're invested in them specifically? Well, I guess I'm doing a lot of things in the space because I believe the blockchain is going to change the world. I don't know exactly what or how and when, but I feel that we're you know, on the cusp of something enormous and I want to participate. And if I had a very strong opinion about the one thing that was going to be, I think they call it the greatest opportunity in the space, I'd be doing that one thing. But because I don't know, I'm trying to participate in every aspect of the ecosystem that I consider to be you know, a place where value will get created. Whether that be the mining segment, the payment segment, the wallet segment, yeah, the, you're... The, the API middleware platforms, you know, the side chains. So I'm participating kind of across the board in all the best companies and best teams I can find. Yeah, so can you name a couple of them? Like BitGo, BitFury. Yeah, uh, Investor in BitGo, BitFury, Chain, Blockstream, BlockCypher, CoinSetter, Kraken, GoCoin, ZoomHash, Zenbox, Blade, FreshPay. Yeah, so just all across the board. What area do you find like the most potential value to be created in this particular ecosystem? I mean, is it going to be the exchanges, or are they just kind of the generation one companies? Or is it something that's just entirely new that nobody's even conceived of yet? Kind of like 20 years ago, nobody would have thought of an Uber application with the internet. Yeah, I think some of the biggest ideas to come haven't even probably been thought of yet. I still feel we're kind of in the first phase of the industry's development, which is just building out the basic infrastructure, the bridges, roads, tunnels, you know, and that's where rip a page out of history and kind of look at how the existing financial world works and build the essential services that are needed, maybe with a lot less counterparties and unnecessary intermediaries, but what are those essential sort of services? And so that's where most of the bets have been being made today, but yeah, clearly there's going to be some very big things that we've never thought of that are going to come at some point in the future, and hopefully I see that early enough and I get a chance to participate. Now, you've done quite a bit over in Asia, from what I understand. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've done over in Asia, not just Bitcoin specific, but then also like how you've kind of applied this new industry of Bitcoin with your Asian experience? So I've been in the call it digital currency space since 99, 2000, and that happened in connection with the video game industry. You had these new emerging sort of persistent worlds, think Second Life, World of Warcraft, EverQuest, etc. And these persistent worlds allowed for you to accumulate assets and transfer those to other players in the game, and they took a lot of time to acquire. And so I recognized that these things had value. And so I started making the markets for call it, these digital assets inside of these games before any game company in the world was selling this sort of stuff. 
and I took that business from call it a zero to 100 million in revenue over the first couple of years in the early 2000s. I had more buyers than I had sellers, and so I needed to figure out how to get more inventory. So I went to China and taught the Chinese how to mine digital currency. So I built a supply chain of 400,000 people that would play video games professionally to sell to me that then I would distribute into Western markets. And so I rolled up that industry in Asia, specifically in Korea as well. My business there still does a billion dollars a year. A billion? Yeah, virtual currency exchange. We had like 99% market share in that business in the games industry. Yeah, because I mean, I think people kind of really underestimate how large the game market is. And I mean, these are games like StarCraft. I mean, it's like bigger than football over there. I mean, you have these gigantic e- esports like tournaments. The NFL, I think, in the next twelve months. Really, yeah. esports will surpass the NFL well, actually, in terms of viewership. Yeah, or if what? You, yeah. Well, well, if you saw it, Twitch just got sold to Amazon for roughly a billion dollars. All right. that is. It's basically a streaming channel to watch people play video games against each other. Yeah. League of Legends holds big tournaments at like Staples Center in Los Angeles. They sold out every seat in the stadium in like under 10 minutes. That's faster than any music artist or performer in history. So it's an incredibly cool trend that I've been following and participating in for over a decade. And in Asia, this has been happening for a long time. I mean, yeah. Korea, when you turned on your television 10 years ago, primetime broadcast, it wasn't American Idol. It's two people playing StarCraft heads up. Yeah, so I mean, like, the World Series barely got any ratings, right? And yet everybody's watching, like, these massive Protoss versus Zerg battles or yeah. something. It's, I think it's because it's an aspirational sport. When you watch a, a physical sport, most of the time you go, oh, I'm a fan of this because it's my city, whatever, but that could never be me. When you watch someone play poker on television or if you watch someone play video games, there's no sort of limitation that appears to be obvious that would prevent you from being that person. So I think it has that sort of participatory, highly aspirational sort of aspect to it that I think is the same reason that poker became very popular as people started seeing the World Series of Poker on television and things of that nature. Just being part of this generation, I think it also might just be part of the information age culture in general. Like, during the industrial age, we built tools, but those tools mainly multiplied the power of our muscles. Whereas in the information age, we're building tools that multiply the power of our minds. We're moving away from these mostly physical sports to these mental sports. You know, it's really just showing the demand and the importance that the mind itself is playing in the information age. Because now a mind can impact the world in such a highly leveraged way through hundreds of thousands of computers or the infrastructure that we've got. It really is quite amazing like what impact that single mind can have on the world in general. Completely agree. During the information age, like Shakespeare, Goethe, or Da Vinci, or Copernicus, I mean, the only tool they had was the Gutenberg Press to spread their ideas. It took 150 years to get the scientific journal, and yet now we have things like GitHub and HTTP, TCPIP, SMTP, all these internet protocols, now Bitcoin, that are laying the foundation for the spreading of ideas and being able to influence on just a massive scale. Is that kind of what you've seen in Bitcoin? I mean, is Bitcoin really kind of a capstone protocol in that sense of being able to extend the human experience? The way that I like to describe it in short is I talk about the internet that we use today as the internet of information. This is the Bitcoin or the blockchain is the internet of value. One is a communications protocol. One is a value exchange protocol. And the impact on the world around us, I mean, the one allowed for information to flow anywhere in the world very rapidly. 
when you can start to move value instantaneously and securely all over the world, the impact on the world around us will probably be more significant than the internet. Yeah, and geography just I mean, it's, plays. it's fundamentally rewiring the, the foundation of the world we live on. Yeah, and changing like the whole way we organize society, much less based on geography, but instead ideology or on yeah. ideas. I mean, it's like we're living through such, a, such an exciting... It, it really is. It's a, it's a fundamentally exciting time that's... And we're like, participating in it. Yeah, we get to create all of this. We get to build the world that we want to see in the future. When you look at Bitcoin, you talk about this Internet of Value... You're involved in things like MasterCoin, MadeSafe. Are we just going to be like subservient to algorithms or computers? Like, are they going to put humanity out of business? I mean, the horse population peaked, you know, around the turn of the 20th century because horse labor became so inefficient. As we move into the information age with the rise of the robots, with machines that are the cashiers, or now the Lowe's now has a machine that you go up and ask questions about and it finds the light bulb for the sing- you. The singularity you're, is near. You're able to check into your hotel with Starwoods now without even talking to the front desk. You just do it via your app. Can you speak to a little bit about that and like the role Bitcoin's playing in all of this? Yeah, I mean, can I envision a future where we eliminate ourselves as a species as a result of technology? Sure. I mean, the singularity is near and is a system like the blockchain, would that be an instrumental sort of a critical function needed for that future to occur? Yeah. For those digital autonomous corporations or for... Yeah, we need something like this to do that. Yeah, with the right artificial intelligence then built on top. Yes, in theory, but I mean, it won't happen in my lifetime, so... <laughs> Somebody else is probably... <laughs> like, that's still science fiction, like, you know... The... Yeah, it's Be... out there, but yeah, I could envision a future, a number of them, where something like that could occur. But it doesn't keep me up at night. I mean, not necessarily that we'll get replaced by the machines or by the algorithms, but just this concept that the science fiction writers, they go find these ideas. And in a lot of ways, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. We're living in a science fiction world now. The sheer scope and amount of technology that we have, it's what used to fuel the sci-fi writers of just 20 years ago. Are the sci-fi writers like running out of material or? I think there'll always be more material, but yeah. I mean, science fiction is wonderful for that reason. I mean, a lot of the coolest predictions about the technologies that we're using today were dreamed up and invented by the science fiction writers that were envisioning some future and these things eventually have been developed. No, I think there's still plenty of future technologies to be invented that are not yet here. What have I read recently that'd be interesting? Did you read anything, any new science fiction lately? Well, like in The Good Wife, you know, the lawyer says, oh, I, I bought my first Bitcoin today. She's like, it just didn't feel real. And he says, well, real's going to change. Yeah. I mean, you come from a background where you're selling these, like, digital shields and swords in these virtual worlds and these virtual games. And yet, in a lot of ways, those swords and those shields are just as real, if not more real, than physical objects that we've got, like, in our hands. Yes. Is there just a whole different paradigm through which this digital generation, these digital natives, see the world compared to the older generations? Is that perhaps what's causing some of the friction with regulation in Bitcoin, for example? Well, I mean, clearly, reality is essentially our own perception of it. The lives that we led in the world we lived in shapes our view of the future. And clearly, the kids of today are just born into using these things, and they don't have to have any sort of learning curve, and they don't have to unwire anything. At least my generation, I feel fortunate enough that I was only born in the 80s, and 
you know, I grew up on having computers and I grew up having access to the internet. But yeah, like my daughter today, uh, by the age of two, I mean, she can run an iPad better than I could. Yeah. But yeah. in the world of like the gaming stuff, and it was a very interesting observation going back 10 whatever plus years ago. And for a lot of the people living inside of these worlds, that life and the time that they spent in that environment was more important to them than their analog sort of real world life. That digital asset was more important than almost any physical asset they had because to them that's what mattered. That was the thing they cared about. Maybe they were not happy with the mundane life they, they might have been living, but in this place they were Superman. A different, they, were, they were a hero. They, they were able to live their dream, live out this alternative reality that they found more fulfilling than the one that they had in yeah, I think Star Trek had a whole episode on holodeck addiction, you yeah. know, like living inside these virtual worlds. But, you know, it makes you wonder, like, well, how do you even distinguish the real from the virtual, especially as our lives get more and more intertwined with these technologies? For example, if you lose your cell phone or if you get cut off from your email account, there's a very real sense of loss That's there, <laughs> you know? I mean... Because we use these tools like Dropbox and Evernote and Basecamp and Twitter and email, all these are tools that we use to extend ourself and extend our consciousness, just like we extend our consciousness with our arms or our hands or our feet. You know, we're all cyborgs in a sense. With Bitcoin, we're able to interface with this digital reality at an even more fundamental basis in terms of subjective value theory, in terms of like being able to put a price or a value on things. Do you see that having any particular impacts on society in general? Do you think we're, in a lot of ways, going to be losing our humanity, losing our ability to conversate or tell stories with each other? I mean, like, how's it going to change? How are anthropologists going to be looking at us? It's already changed. I mean, you walk into most restaurants and you look at the people at the table, how often do you see a couple sitting down and they're both on their phone and not actually talking to each other? Texting around or whatever. Uh, people live their lives on Facebook these days. I mean, real human interactions are you know, becoming less and less frequent. And you're seeing more of these, it's almost voyeuristic kind of just following everyone's lives and dribs and drabs. And you know, the world is you know, certainly changing. And I'm not sure it's in a bad way. I mean, what we're seeing is kind of collective consciousness forming. All of us, you know, what, like you said, something was figured out, you know, if I'm working in a lab trying to solve some important problem, there's a discovery I have. It might take five years for that to get to someone else in another lab trying to solve the same problem. Now all of that information flows freely and you're getting this sort of global collective consciousness and the speed at which you know, we can accelerate in terms of our learning and the impact and the things that we can invent and the things that we can do to change the world are you know, happening at an ever faster and faster rate. But yeah, sometimes maybe it's a good idea to go uh, you know, shut off your phone and go to the forest for a month. <laughs> Well, a lot of people listening to this podcast, you know, maybe they're thinking, well, what entrepreneurial endeavor can I use Bitcoin for? And, you know, with the multi-signature technology and the escrowing, you know, the distributed trust, distributed consensus, being able to form those trust bonds, no longer do we have to have these centralized third parties with credit cards in there to perhaps give the trust. Like when you check into the hotel and you have a charge placed against your credit card or at least a hold placed on it so that in case you cause any damage we can now do all that through the blockchain and we could reorganize so many different aspects of society whether it's online dating or organizing groups or meetup groups things of that nature i mean there's so many different ways that we could apply this technology to make the uber model more efficient or airbnb or couch surfing all of these things 
what would you like to see an entrepreneur build with the blockchain technology applied to it? Well, one of the things I'm very excited about, and there's a few people you know, making plays in this space, whether it be Tether or BitReserve or Ripple uh, and Stellar to an extent, is I actually am a big fan of this concept of putting fiat currency on the blockchain. Specifically, you take a place like the Philippines, and the Philippine government just a couple weeks ago announced that they want to put the peso on the blockchain and create the e-peso. In the Philippines, you got called 100 million people. You've got 5 million credit cards and debit cards, not unique people total. That's probably two or three million people. You know, so what you're looking at is probably somewhere less than 5% of the population of that country is banked by our standards. The official number is probably like 25%. Like 5% of the population in these places. The minute you put that currency on top of the applications that we've been building here, the Filipino population can be banked overnight. They won't need decades of infrastructure to be built. And they would arguably have better financial infrastructure than we have here. So you think about the developing world is in a situation now where it can catch up and reach parity with the developed world in a matter of months or years instead of decades. And again, arguably have better infrastructure. And this is back to the area of trust and a big problem in most of these places. Probably only a quarter of the world's population has the ability to transact online today because all the payment systems that are used require trust. If you're in Africa or if you're not from you know a first world sort of country, you're not likely able to easily buy anything online because the merchants or someone in that stack doesn't trust you. You know, eliminating the need for trust is going to allow all of the world's population to participate in the internet economy. And I think that's the main thing that what we're doing here and how it's going to serve and help people is billions of people's lives around the world are going to improve immensely as a result of the infrastructure we're able to give them soon, arguably today. Wow, so we just have billions of people that some of them are very smart and they're going to be able to now participate and add value they might come up with the cure for cancer. They might have you know, some solution that they creatively come up with for some problem in our life, and it's going to increase the overall wealth and well-being of everybody on the planet, is what I'm understanding you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I look at, you, you take a look at a place like Africa, and there's many issues that we could identify in Africa. I would argue that the underlying problem is the basic financial infrastructure. I believe if you solve that problem and you give people the power to take care of themselves, you know, a lot of those other issues start to solve themselves. And I think it's just, we live very blessed lives. We're very, very fortunate to have been born where we are and, you know, with family and eventually friends. We live blessed lives and most of the world, you know, does not have that. And giving them the basic tools that we take for granted, I think is the thing that's going to impact lives as much as anything. And yes, and once you give people that ability, then they can go do the amazing things to change the world. But when you're just trying to figure out how to survive, you know, that day, you're not likely going to go do any of those great things that might impact other people's lives positively. Well, there we go. I think we've kind of run out of time. We've had an excellent interview on kind of the philosophy and the science fiction. And we have a visionary here thinking about the future and working to make it real with so many different companies in the Bitcoin space. Founder of GoCoin investor in BitFury, chairman on MasterCoin board, board of directors too, too, for too Bitcoin many, Foundation. Too many, <laughs> too, too many titles. Uh, Brock Pierce, thanks for being with us. We're not enough. <laughs> Thank you, Trace. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. 
Don't be shy. To help the show, share Bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise, spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.